Hey guys, welcome back to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host, as always, Steve Hall, and today I have Mike Murray back on the show. We talk about his training and specifically touch on length and partials and whether or not he's been experimenting with those. And then we dig into advanced training techniques, whether or not he thinks that they're particularly useful and whether or not he uses them very regularly. And then we delve into his transition into becoming a vegan bodybuilder. Well, he's a bodybuilder and he's vegan, right? So he becomes a vegan bodybuilder. And whether or not he had any concerns for his bodybuilding and how he makes sure to maximize his muscle growth still whilst eating a vegan diet, even in contest prep. And then we delve into some of the recent research that looked into whether or not there is actually a leucine threshold and what the practical implications might be for us. And as a reminder, guys, this show only grows by you guys sharing it with people that might want to listen, even over on social media, and also subscribing and giving us a really solid review or comments and any sort of feedback like that is highly appreciated. So if you are listening currently and you want to make sure you don't miss out on any juicy episodes in future, please do subscribe and support the show. We appreciate it. But without further ado, let's get into it. Hi guys, welcome back to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host as always, Steve Hall, and today I have Mike back on the show, uh, Mike Murray, uh, our man from examine.com. And uh, yeah, we had a fantastic chat last time and uh, I felt it made sense to kind of split it up because we talked about various aspects of Mike's background and some really interesting stuff going over like supplementation and things that he'd been trying out during his prep and just the background behind that. But I wanted to dig a bit into some of his training now uh, during his off season and, and maybe whether or not it's been influenced by some of the, the recent data. And so we're going to dig into that. So obviously the kind of thing that's in vogue is like training at uh, I don't know if calling it training at long muscle lengths or the data behind range of motion is became become or becoming clearer that there's something to potentially like this stretch mediated hypertrophy or this kind of uh, having tension at a long muscle length versus a short muscle length seems to be more important. And obviously you're someone who you're a competitive bodybuilder, you keep up to date with like the, the evidence as a whole. And so I, I, I doubt there's many people who are like ourselves who haven't thought about it or experimented mm. with something or it's influenced maybe at least their exercise selection i'd be surprised um and you were probably doing a lot of things right before the data came out anyway i imagine like full range of motion but anyway with that aside what are your current like how has it influenced your training and what has been your experience with it positive negative or kind of neutral yeah so i've definitely been experimenting with it um in terms of my experience and whether I can report if it had a beneficial effect, um, I don't know, man. Give me like a year and I'll let you know. Because, so yeah, we discussed last time, like I recently uh, just came out of contest prep. It was 32 weeks. When I like really became convinced that there was something there, um, I was in an energy deficit. So, you know, uh, couldn't really tell, you know, like maybe, you know, maybe uh the lengthened partial work was helping me better preserve the muscle i had what but i don't know you know i did i didn't get any like objective body composition measurements done and i didn't have any from my past prep to be able to compare that but i definitely have been playing around with it um i think it's worth trying for different muscle groups there is there's some in the evidence-based space who are just like 
yelling at the top of their lungs on social media how this research doesn't apply to specific muscle groups based off of x y and z mechanisms which like i don't know maybe we can come back to that i'm very skeptical about those claims but um i've been playing around with them for basically every every muscle group and again so i started implementing them in prep still implementing them and like i guess the the main ways i've been applying that research is that like if i'm doing like flat inclined dumbbell presses like i'm not locking anything out man and like part of that is because my chest might be my weakest muscle group and it's like again i've been applying all these evidence-based principles for like you know uh probably like seven years now and it's like oh my chest still sucks like what do i have to lose man like i'm just not locking out these presses anymore and i'll see what happens um for back work at this point i basically end like every set with lengths and partials like and that was something you know before this research came out i always reflected on and like just didn't just like didn't something seemed off to me right it was like hmm like it was almost like no matter how much back volume I did, like my lats wouldn't get sore and like my upper back could just like take an absolute beating. And it was like, well, well, why is that? And it's like, well, probably because like when you can't get to that fully shortened position anymore, like there's still so much more work that your back can do. And it's just like, like theoretically, right? It's like maybe you're getting to like muscular failure on presses and stuff because, um, the resistance profile is so biased that length and position but whereas it's the opposite for back it's just like maybe <laughs> maybe you're actually stopping almost like five six reps short of like yeah. true muscular failure you know like however people want to define that there, there's some controversy around that like maybe that's the case and then also i've just been messing around with of course the n1 stuff right so like the pull arounds and getting that yes. extended range of motion. And, you know, for what it's worth, I found that with significantly less volume, incorporating these partials at the end of sets, um, using these different exercises to really take advantage of that length and position, like my back gets sore. Again, with significantly less volume, like, you know, it's not like it's not like that means I'm growing better. But it's definitely a sign that like my back's working, right? Like whatever we yeah. want to say about muscle soreness and muscle damage and how it relates to muscle hypertrophy, at the end of the day, like if that muscle's getting sore, we at least know it's doing some work <laughs> in that session. And and that's useful. So yeah, I've been playing around with that. I, I think research is solid. I'm uh I'm subscribed to is it Milo or Milo Wolf? Uh, I think Milo, at least that's how uh, I've always been saying it, but I, I'm notoriously saying names wrong. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's Milo, though. <laughs> so I'm subscribed to his new letter, and he just informed me about like this preprint that came out about a study that was using like the multi-hit machine. Yes. Yeah, and they and they found that, again, like length and partials were better for hypertrophy there. So like literally after I saw that email, like that day I had RDLs, and I was like, we're just doing... We're just doing length and partials. They're gnarly, right? <laughs> They're so gnarly. It was actually uh, like really difficult for me to judge how close I was to failure yes. on those, um, especially because I was doing them for higher reps. And like, I literally like come out of the bottom. And then I was like, yeah, I probably had like a few reps left in the tank. And then I was like so exhausted. I like couldn't get the bar back in the rack. And I was like, oh man, this is a tough one. I'm going to have to get used to. But yeah, those are gnarly. So I started playing around with those two. Um, I think I think the research is convincing. You know, I I would recommend to people I work with to play around with them and, and see if it works or not. Like I just 
I don't think there's any downside to it at this point, for the most part. I've, I've heard Kasim say some things where, from his N equals one experience, that like only using length and partials for, you know, every exercise for an entire block, like maybe, you know, you could run into some like slight orthopedic issues. And like, I guess I, you know, that's possible. But like, at least incorporating a nice balance of full ROM and length and partials for like every muscle group for every block. I think, yeah, man, why not? Yeah. Yeah. I think you touched on some really, like there was lots of things in there that, cause I've also been experimenting with it and like bits and pieces there. And actually the really interesting one was the similar, that question, like that I didn't necessarily ask you, but you kind of um, took it on cause it's an obvious thing to kind of think about is people have asked me like, Hey, so, are you growing better with length and partials? Like, what are the results like? And I'm like, dude, like I've been training for over 10 years. <laughs> like I, I can't give you like anything from, I, I, like you said, I need to be doing it for like a year. And then even then, like it's not like it's in a vacuum. There's other things going on that maybe have like implicated things. So it isn't like you you do kind of have to go off the research. It's kind of similar to like, I don't mm -hmm. know. Not that the research on creatine kind of we got a bit of a kick in the balls recently with yeah, <laughs> like yeah. the, that meta analysis that came out that was like, hey, maybe we're not growing as much as we think from creatine. There's like some water retention going on that maybe wasn't taken into consideration. But still, there's like good evidence that it, it's doing something there. And it's like, well, I kind of trust, like you said, I think that's there's four published studies and now there'd mm -hmm. be a fifth one with that kind of uh, that preprint. And like four out of five then are like, hey, thumbs up partials are growing you better than uh, full rom is it's like well if you're holding on to full rom where are the studies saying that full rom is better than partials like but anyway on your point i'm like short term it's like you said soreness these are some of the things that i would be looking at like uh, mike israel popularized in terms of stimulus which i do like mm -hmm. like soreness uh like the muscle pump like that kind of my muscle connection slash like disruption local fatigue to that musculature uh, like feeling that stretch on the muscle mm -hmm. and yeah some of the stuff from n1 i've been using quite a few of them for my back like the pull arounds as you just did some today and like my lats don't get that sort of that short-term kind of feedback in terms of stimulus like they were from just like a pull-up for example mm -hmm. and yeah what you mentioned with back stuff like you said you're kind of scratching your head before this stuff came out like what like it just doesn't seem completely right and i was always trying to find excuses to like i don't know use momentum be like yeah is this is like strategic use of momentum and i guess that's like a fair thing and the kind of old school bodybuilders were doing that in a way but now it's a bit of a cleaner just hey just let yourself go to a partial <laughs> range of motion yeah, yeah. versus like having to swing and potentially fatigue yourself and not really to get justice from it um so in terms of, from the sounds of things you've tried both uh taking sets like to full rom and then letting it go to partials mm. and you've done sets where it's just like purely length and partials uh, i guess it only really works to go full rom to length and partials for movements like back where it's like it's actually you're weaker in that short position and you're stronger in the and it's opposite in terms of the uh, resistance profile of the movement so you can't really you can't go to full ROM to length and partials on like squats. <laughs> it's just not going to happen, for example. Um, so is that, have you tried any of the integrated partials? Because I know you mentioned N1 and I know Chasm's kind of talked about that a fair bit. Yeah, so I've actually been using those for um, cable lateral raises. And that's another one, man, where I'm like, what the heck is going on? Like I, I straight up, like I do two working sets of cable lateral raises a week. I do one set on like two different days 
and like my side delts will be sore for like two days after and like again like i didn't know sore side delts were like a thing that existed before i started playing around these things it's like yeah dukes it's like and again like with reference to the amount of volume i was doing like i know for a fact like blocks in the past like i would have sessions where i would do five sets of dumbbell lateral raises you know and it's just like i would feel like some fatigue you know how it is like there's a difference between like noticing that a muscle is fatigued and that it's like smashed and it's like genuinely sore and like you don't want to move it it's like yeah i'll get some fatigue in the days after and it was like you know i'm sure if i did lateral raises immediately the next day like my performance would be compromised but like they never get that sore and now like i'm doing you know one like super hard set of these integrated partials and just like utter soreness for days so i'm just like i mean like it's just it's just very interesting i don't i don't know what to make of it again like mate you know the research suggests there's something there it's a it's almost just like trust the process you know yes. and see what happens see if you can recognize these changes and like <laughs> like you mentioned uh it's just so tough to assess changes in body composition like at this point like Literally, I'm like, I don't know, man, like ask me in three years when I diet again. And then I'm like, hey, like I was like 170 pounds and like eight times. And like now I'm and like, oh, look at these new, look at these new lines and features in this physique. Like other than that, like, I don't know what to tell you. Like I've had, I've had like advanced um, lifters, like in interaction with these people being like, yeah, dude, like this new program that I'm on, like I can tell. Like it's doing that. I'm like, what do you mean you can tell? And I'm like, am I an idiot? And I just don't know like what's going on with my own body. Like, I feel like I'm really in tune with these things. And like, I can never tell these minute changes that apparently other advanced lifters are going through like on a monthly basis. And I'm like, I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm not in the wrong and all these people are just lying <laughs> to themselves. It's funny you say that because I try and you, I don't know, keep this like bro mentality behind me where I'm like convinced, like I, like I almost want to just believe I'm growing. So I'm like, hey, if I'm getting a really good pump and like things are feeling good, I'm feeding myself. Like I look in the mirror, things look great. I'm like, yeah, definitely growing on this program. Like I like that kind of almost placeboing myself into yeah. it. But yeah. at the same time, you do see these people where I'm like, dude, you, like I've seen people who have been training 10, 15 years and they're like, oh yeah, I've, I don't know, finished prep two months ago and I've transformed this muscle already because I've just been absolutely attacking it. And like, I know I'm going to look different on stage. And I'm like, Hey, why? What's going? Like, what magic? Like, I, I don't know what. what but uh, maybe it's that like just complete self belief that some of these people have in it, and maybe helps them in that way. And yeah, I want. Sometimes I do wonder if like, uh, it, it's all. It comes down to like some of these placebo things is, is a real effect, and maybe sometimes ignorance is bliss for some stuff. Yeah, I think so. And, and that's another issue with the length and partial thing is that like. So again, like, what's the best way to assess changes in body composition? Like, how do we know things working? Like, for me personally, especially in the off season, like, again, we talked about this last time, like, I don't like posing. I don't like, like, spending that time practicing, especially in the off season when it's just like, I already don't like it and I don't really see a good reason to do it. So I'm not going to do it. So what do I do um, to track progress? I literally just, like, look at my body weight, my lift progressions, how those relate to, like, past performances at that body weight and see if things are going the right direction. Except now... I'm doing all these length and partials and these integrated partials. And like, I have no data to compare to. So now I'm just basically like looking at the end of blocks and I'm like, well, my progression on this movement went up. And like, so I guess, I guess in like a year, uh, I'll let you know whether like I added 
five pounds to my <laughs> integrated <laughs> partials on cable lateral raises. We'll see if my side delts got bigger. Yeah, I think that that's again, uh, those are the same metrics. I think uh, hopefully a lot of the listeners on the podcast are aware those are just like the best metrics to really be using. Obviously, using photos under like for like conditions can be helpful, but like in the short term, like it's pretty challenging. Like maybe mm-hmm. the best thing we have is like reset that those like short term stimulus proxies. Medium term though, strength progression I think is a great one. But it's similar to you where I was like, that's the proxy I'd use, but everything's very novel and I'm getting yeah. like n- neurological gains for sure on everything. So I don't even know how long I've been running partials for. And I don't often check like consistently check my program, like how am I progressing? I kind of, like mm-hmm. you said, trust the process. I just go through it, train hard. I know it's yep. like similar loads to what I should be using because if I check too often, and <laughs> I don't know about you, Mike, but I'm not making PRs like super regularly. So I'm just like, <laughs> I don't want to know. Sometimes ignorance is bliss in that regard. And just like do the do, not check up at all the time. Absolutely, dude. Absolutely. Same here. So on the lines of, so that's where he called the, the length and partial stuff. And I think, I think that's where, to me, that's the sensible stance to take is don't be dogmatic with whatever your kind of preconceived beliefs were around range of motion, trial some of it, see how it feels to you. And actually out of interest, because I have heard that argument of injury risk and maybe like orthopedically isn't great. Have you run into any issues with that yourself or have you been feeling okay? No, I haven't. And maybe that's because... You know, part of it is because I do implement like a variety of movements. I almost like, like it's something I do consider to the point where like I will put in certain movements at certain points to potentially offset that. Right. So like an example might be like, you know, I don't, I don't lock out any presses and like these, I'm like biasing that lengthening position, but then I'll also include from time to time, um, again, shout out N1, like cable push arounds. So I am getting like that full movement of the shoulder blades in there. And then, you know, like even for my cable lateral raises, like I, get, like I haven't done exclusively lengthened partials on those. Like the closest I've got is an integrated partial. So I'm still doing full range of motion on those exercises. Um, even with the RDL, I also have a, I, I have a day where I do stiff leg deadlifts from the floor. So I'm getting full hip extension there. And that one is just like, man, I just really enjoy performing that movement. <laughs> like just hypertrophy goals aside, man, I just like, you know, going off, getting into like that primal state and just like picking things Rip up off the floor. <laughs> yeah, like straight up. I like, you know, uh, you know, just maybe I watched too many uh, Jordan Peters videos on <laughs> okay, Instagram, <yeah. laughs> but like, but I, I love them, you know, so I do them. But yeah, there is like, a nice balance between these where sure. I'm usually offsetting some of that. So like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure. Yeah. It's uh, I have, I slowly incorporated it all. So it's again, mm-hmm. one of those where I'm like, at this point, I'm doing a lot, like you said, like I'm not locking out my presses for most things, but I think all my pulling is length and partials, like exclusively. I don't even go full ROM anymore. I just come to eye, eye line or whatever, or like 90 degree arm bend. Oh, really? basically. Yeah. Pretty much everything is that way and same with lateral raises like i'm just like come to shoulder height screw like anything higher than yeah, there. Like, yeah. i don't come any higher uh the only one i've had issues with and clients is behind body lateral raises i don't know if you've done those like cables mm-hmm. or i did some like a uh, incline bench like letting the dumbbells come behind me and that caused my shoulders some issues but that's really i think that's fairly individual and so I, I haven't and again there's no real good data to say this like there's definitely going to be any issue and i think it's just 
uh, the people I've spoken to, and I think it makes sense, is just like slowly incorporate these things. Don't suddenly go, hey, let's drop all full ROM and go all length and partials. It's probably not going to be fun. <laughs> yeah, I think there are definitely some um, inner individual difference there that needs to be taken into account, right? So it's like we should, like, if we go with this notion that we should be biasing the length and position, right? Like, that doesn't necessarily mean we need to get like as lengthened as possible in every movement, irrespective of like how that individual's uh, anatomically structured and like their mobility limitations. So, like for example, like on the behind the back cubilateral raise, like my my hand doesn't get that far behind me. Like it might get to like you know the outside of my glute, but I'm not going all the way back. Why? Because I don't I don't have that range of motion. It's like I could like. I could let the weight force me there, you know, but I would probably run into orthopedic issues. And like, same thing with my dumbbell presses, man. Like I, I don't have great shoulder mobility. So like someone might look at my presses from the side and be like, Hey man, length and bias. Like, why aren't you getting deeper? And it's like, cause my shoulder will literally explode or like even on like high incline barbell presses. Like, do I touch my chest on those? No, I don't. Cause I don't have access to that range of motion. And if I force myself into that and let the weight just take me there, irrespective of whether I own that range of motion or not, like I run into shoulder issues. So it's like I've been implementing this principle within the confines of like my individual constraints. And, you know, to your point, I think other people need to take that in consideration. Right. But like, you know, as humans and like the irrational apes we can be, it's like length and bias, man, like I'm going all the way like as deep as I can on everything. And it's like, maybe that'll be good for you. Or like, maybe it won't like at all. I think that's really well said. Yeah. I think it's just like, Hey, listen to your body. If you're getting pain, discomfort, like work mm -hmm. within the range that you can consistently work with. Uh, another one actually just out of, cause I know again from Kasim was I was doing like as length and bias as I could. I essentially just like doing like almost like a shrug down, um, yeah, to like yeah. work that just like the lats as lengthened as mm -hmm. possible. And, then I started just getting like, my shoulder was not happy with that. Almost immediately, it was just like, no, that's too much load, like specifically in this position. I was like, okay, I don't, I'm don't, i not going to do that one. So yeah. yeah, I think that's great advice is listening to your body. Um, so to talk about something else, actually, I know you posted about it a little bit, was like these, and it's funny, they're always termed advanced training techniques, mm -hmm. like intensifiers and drop sets and those sort of things. Are they things that you program regularly for yourself, um, what's your kind of yeah philosophy behind implementing those? And yeah, when what's your what are your thoughts behind advanced training techniques in general? Yeah, so these things like referring to here, drop sets, rest pause sets, and the like. Would you consider uh, like antagonistic paired sets an advanced training technique? It's a great question because it's like, what makes something an advanced training <laughs> technique? Like, I always have a problem with it. I'm like it's not like they're specifically better for advanced people. It's just like another way of generating a stimulus. So like I could see people, but yeah, why not put it in there? But it's also like, but it, it, it doesn't feel like it suits, <laughs> suits it as well as others do. Dude, to uh, your point, when I was working as a personal trainer in, in, um, in a public gym, I would use antagonistic paired sets with like relatively untrained people all the time because those people like 
hate waiting two to three minutes between sets and i'm like let's go we're gonna do this squat and then go over and do this like assisted push-up movement and it's just like and we're moving and our performance like isn't taking a hit because we're you know we're trained and like a couple of studies showing that too so yeah i don't i don't love the term advanced training techniques either i'd probably like my my head goes to agonist like supersets maybe so like a yeah. squat uh, or not let's say a like one i've done before is like leg extensions into sissy squats which is pretty mm-hmm. horrific but it's just a, generally they're like again maybe they're done it they're like it's called burnouts at the end of sessions yeah. it's like things that you tag on to the training you're already doing to maybe get elicit like a greater pump or mm-hmm. uh to like extend a set maybe versus yeah i think you're practice as a personal trainer was a really smart thing to do uh and i yeah it's, it's weird that it's called advanced because it's like then people think it's people then think it's either they're less advanced so they think it's special and they're like oh, i should do that to get advanced mm-hmm. or it just glamorizes the whole thing and i don't know why they end up getting called advanced maybe it's just because they're a bit more complex than straight sets <laughs> yeah for sure yeah so uh referring to sets that aren't straight sets um do i don't incorporate them regularly um yeah like i don't i don't use them as like a progression method or anything even though like you theoretically could as a way to add some volume i just man i see all of these things as just like a tool to use if you have a time crunch because you know last time i checked the data there doesn't seem to be any advantage there that's for sure um is there a detriment i I'm not really convinced there's a detriment either, even though, again, you know, some people shouting at the top of their lungs on social media about how, like, they're so fatiguing and that is a detriment. And it's like based on X, Y, and Z mechanisms, use these rest pause sets, these drop sets, you know, exponentially more fatigue. It's going to hurt your gains. Yeah, I don't know. It's just like in these long-term training interventions, it doesn't seem like anyone's gains are getting particularly um impaired by using these techniques so i'm just like skeptical of that idea but regardless yeah i don't use them regularly um i would just use them in in a time crunch i don't i don't see an advantage i don't see a disadvantage even though i will say um something that i find really interesting you're, you're familiar with dog crap training right i have heard of it i've never ran it myself okay um but yeah like it's very low volume. It's relatively low frequency. You know, like the the basic split they run is usually like this like three-day split. So you train like three days per week. You like one exercise for each muscle group. It's going to be, you know, a rest pause set. So you're going to have the one straight set followed by two drops. And, you know, it's just like uh, in like the old school, like meathead bodybuilding space, man, it's like dog crap training just has like this this thing behind it it was like this magic it was this like special program and like so many people who weren't growing well just like got ginormous gains from doing it and i like i feel like i go back and like i'll like check the forum from that era like like every eight months like with like a new understanding of like the most relevant research on like these techniques. And I'll be like, like, why did this work? I'm like, why were so many people successful? And every time I look at it, I have like a slightly different perspective. And like, I'm still, again, like I consider the data. <laughs> and like, if you follow Dante Trudell on Instagram, like he'll still, you know, claim that there is something like inherently special about using rest pause sets. And like, I don't think the data supports that, but he's gotten like all of these results with like, you know, 
elite body, even elite bodybuilders by using this technique. And I'm just like, I think it's fascinating. Uh, you know, I don't know. You can, uh, depends on what kind of value you place on like anecdotes and that N equals one experience, I guess. Yeah, it's similar to, I don't know, if I was speaking to someone like Mike Isretel and you're saying, okay, so what if I do like assisted, like past failure repetitions or something here? And he might say something like, why not just end the set and then do another set afterwards? Mm -hmm. Like just do another straight set. And it's like, yeah, I mean, we're just all trying to get to stimulus. And it, it just seems, especially the more data that comes out, it's like there's just so many different ways to like skin a cat. Like if you... Yeah. You don't, if you rest longer, generally there's more growth when sets are matched. But if you rest shorter and you do more sets, you can probably make up the difference and like you get to the same place at the end. Uh, so it's kind of like the, the, the more I talk to people about it, the more I see coming out, I'm like, ah, oh, like now it makes sense why people who maybe I thought in my head five years ago weren't quote unquote evidence based mm -hmm. were getting like just really good results doing like what back then maybe wasn't considered ideally the evidence-based way to go but they were getting results and now data comes out and it's like yeah it's because they were getting stimulus through this mechanism or whatever it is mm -hmm. and you look at um, I, I know you're into like following different bodybuilders and how they get results and where they get to mm -hmm. and the more i see it i'm just like this there's some people really like smashing high volume some people really like smashing low volume it's like they just they found something that works for them and they just went with it and like there's just many ways to go about things and i think it's people often try and use science and i definitely used to try and do this to find the perfect prescription for like training and it's like and try and find like magic out there it's like uh, you're probably not going to be able to do that <laughs> yeah dude i've like my position on training interventions in recent years has like definitely changed a lot to the point where i don't even like i'm skeptical of like a lot of the resistance exercise intervention studies um just because of like the heterogeneity and the response resistance exercise is just like madness like if like there's some like really interesting studies looking at the response to the same resistance exercise intervention and like you know like some people make no gains whatsoever and some people make all the gains and then it's just like and then even in and so when you look at these individual data points from these studies that report that data and you look at these other ones that like report an average and sometimes studies will report both of them right and you'll see this average but then you'll go to the individual data points you'll see some people got worse some people got better it's like well here's the average response and i'm just like like the more i look at these studies and the more of them that come out like i'm just like i don't like i don't really know like what to do with it i almost like at this point everyone whatever anyone thinks is right and what worked for them i'm like yeah, I agree. It did work for you. <laughs> yeah. Like you did respond that well. Like I have no reason to think that you didn't. And it's like, I'm not sure, like, maybe this is just like an optimistic perspective, but like, I do think, I do think there are magic resistance exercise protocols out there for some people. I really do think that there are certain individuals who, if you put them on like this super low volume, like, just balls to the wall like every set ends like two failure or pass failure like they might respond significantly better to that than like this higher training volume program keeping a couple reps in the tank like they might like uniquely for whatever reason respond better to that and it might be the opposite for other people 
And then I think there's a lot of people where it literally doesn't matter which one you do, like your gains are your gains. <laughs> and you it's all about just like programming either or correctly, right? And then I think there are people who think they respond well to something, but they don't understand what confounding factors were preventing them from responding well to the opposite program, right? So the dude who like did super high volume, then he goes to low volume and he's like, I grow so much better from this. Could he be... Could the low volume be the unique uh, recipe for his gains? It might be. He could be that person. Or maybe he just like programmed the high volume trading like egregiously incorrectly, right? Whereas like, dude, if you do that many sets for each muscle group, you can't take all of them to absolute failure and do it. Like you're just digging a ditch for yourself and like you couldn't get out of it. And it's like, if you just kept a few reps in the tank and like program this better in a more evidence-based way, you probably would have responded as well to that as you're doing this low volume it's just like you programmed incorrectly but yeah so i don't know it was like a long-winded <laughs> long-winded way of saying like i really do think like everything works but there are like there are a lot of levels to that yeah no and, and to your point it's actually i don't know how much you keep up with uh some of the like uh natural bodying sphere on youtube but uh there's been like some power building debates of like isn't an abomination like terrible for bodybuilding, like terrible for growth, or is it actually something that you can legit use? And my previous stance on it was very much like, hey, I did it and I didn't see good results. So I think it's not good. Whereas now I look mm -hmm. at it and I'm like, I can definitely see how people could program that way. And they're not going to get the most best on of either, but I could see them getting okay on both for sure, because I didn't program it well previously i didn't have good nutritional inputs previously like it just wasn't a smart like well thought, thought out approach whereas now if i was to do it with someone i'd be like okay like i could definitely set it up in a better way where they could probably see like decent results with both and i kind of find those extreme stances like once you've been in this uh i guess industry long enough you've kept an eye on the literature enough you have enough experience seeing different athletes and competitors like to be like any extreme dogma in terms of your mindset and say like that definitely can't work it's like uh, and i can see how it probably could work in some scenarios like you just can't you end up not being able to be closed-minded once you've been here long enough yeah absolutely uh on the uh whether power building's an abomination that's interesting i didn't know that was going on but um out of like sheer uh like my program right now a lot of it just has to do with like having fun while like still, you know, my goals going the right, like, is it optimal? Probably not. Like, I don't think it is, but like, I'm having a lot of fun doing it, but it's like a play on power building in such a way that I think is like most conducive to the hypertrophy. So like, to your point, like better and worse ways to program it. So like I squat bench and deadlift, right. But it's like, my squat is a heel, heel elevated SSB. My deadlift is a stiff leg deadlift, right? So if I use like a low bar back squat and like a sumo deadlift instead of the things that I'm doing, like I would argue that those that would make for like an inferior power building program where if like we compare that to like a pure hypertrophy program over like 12, 24 weeks, like maybe we'd see some significant differences in growth. But like, but if you set it up in such a way where like you like, again, they're just better and worse ways to program it. Yeah. It's pretty interesting. Yeah. No, really well, really well said. And I actually really enjoyed that training chat, but we're going to talk a bit about nutrition now. <laughs> and uh, I don't know, I think it's probably fair to preface this with saying 
that two years ago, I think you said uh, you transitioned from being vegetarian to being vegan. And yeah. so, uh, and yeah, I, I think it, we obviously talked about it off air, but I actually think people would be really interested to hear what that transition was like for you. Um, why maybe did it take you as long as it did to go vegan versus uh, like, yeah, yeah, kind of that transition would be interesting because I think a lot of people are considering to be more plant-based, potentially even people considering going vegan, but they're a bit unsure. So it'd be really interesting to hear your perspective because I think a lot of people would be similar to yourself. Yeah, so obviously we'll get into the data on this. So I won't get too into that here, but at the time when I was bouncing between these decisions, um, I went from an omnivorous diet to becoming vegetarian. And at that time, like I would say psychologically, I was motivated to become a vegan, but I was genuinely concerned about how making that step might affect um, my progress in terms of bodybuilding. And to me, consuming a vegetarian diet, like obviously has no detriment whatsoever on your gains. Like you still eat eggs, you still eat dairy products. Like you still have whey protein, like you still have whey protein, man. Like what do you, how could could your gains be uh, impaired in any way? And then, you know, so then at that time, you know, I was vegetarian for like a year and then just like more and more data kept coming out on plant-based protein sources. Um, In 2021, we got, you know, the first longitudinal training intervention study looking at an omnivorous diet compared to a vegan diet, you know, compared changes in 1RM strength and muscle mass over time. They saw no difference. And that was, that was the first study doing that. So it was like, oh, like, that's really interesting. And then I, you know, I combined that with some of the data on like uh, the acute muscle protein synthetic response, you know, over like a four hour period to ingesting uh something like whey or an animal derived protein source compared to things like pea protein or whatever and just as more and more data came out you know i became thoroughly convinced that being a vegan wouldn't wouldn't compromise my gains in any way um there are definitely like a lot of considerations in terms of nutrition when it comes to making that leap right like there are certain micronutrients which there's a greater risk of consuming inadequate amounts of on a vegan diet. So for someone like me, it's not, I mean, I'm a registered dietitian. I'm like, yeah, like I got to cover it or whatever, but there are a lot of people in this world. Like I feel like you see uh, like a news headline, like every other month about like some celebrity who like went vegan. It's like, oh, like they're not vegan anymore. It's because they ran into these health issues and like this, that. And I'm just like, Come on, man. And I like sometimes even like share like what they're eating and stuff. And I'm like, this is just like obviously a nutritionally inadequate diet. Like there was no planning put into this whatsoever. And, and that's what happened as a result. But yeah, uh, I was a vegetarian mostly because I was concerned about my gains. And then, you know, as more data came out, I was convinced that it wouldn't impair my gains. And like, you know, can can I say at this point that like, you know, my gains were just as good as a vegan as they were like. You need a twin. I guess, I, I guess, yeah, like, I guess I can't. I guess I can't say that. Like, you know, so someone could always be like, well, yeah, man, like, you know, as a bodybuilder, like, you would have made more progress. You would have had a better competitive season if you weren't vegan. And I'd be like, I don't know, maybe. But I would just say, like, the research wouldn't support that stance. Yeah. 
Do you not see the progress you would like? Are you sick of writing your own programs? Or perhaps you need some accountability in order to stick with the plan? Then it's time to start working with us. We at Revive Stronger offer a truly personalized coaching service. You'll get more than just an email with some macros or random cookie cutter program. With Revive Stronger, you will be the center of our attention. You will receive your own fully individualized training protocol alongside a customized nutritional strategy. We created the coaching around your needs, wants, personal preferences, and your own unique lifestyle. Every single week, we delve into your program in order to make appropriate adjustments so that we get the most out of your time and the best possible outcome. We help both female and male athletes to seriously change their body composition by adding more muscle mass and decreasing fat tissue. No matter if you're a competitive bodybuilder or just want to look better, if you need help with your progress and taking your physique to the next level, our coaching is for you. It's time to make a change, sign up today and let's revive stronger. I guess, uh, what are the fundamental considerations if someone is looking to maximize their bodybuilding and go from uh, maybe vegetarian or omniv omnivorous diet uh how what are some of the like things that they should be looking at so they don't make the mistake that some of the celebs make yeah so in terms of in terms of bodybuilding specifically something that I, had to, I had to put a little bit of time into was basically like finding protein sources that had a good ROI in terms of like total energy content to the amount of protein they provided. And it's like, you always hear like within the space, it's like, yeah, like tofu is a great source of protein. And tofu is a great source of protein, but not for like 30 grams of protein for like, you know, several hundred calories when I could have like got the same amount of protein with like 150 calories from like having a whey protein shake or something. And like, even with, you know, there, there's better stuff out now, but even in terms of like plant-based protein powders, it's going to come with some more carbohydrate in there, maybe a little more fat because companies will add that in just to like make it more palatable. Um, there's, there's a lot of really bad plant-based protein out there. I've and I don't mean it, <laughs> I don't mean in terms of like, uh, like, quality, you know, the effect on like yeah. muscle protein. I, I just mean like in terms of like mixability and taste and like, earthy absolutely, is the yeah, word i find earthy earthy <laughs> yeah. um so i think just like being aware of like solid protein options is really important so it's like yeah you don't have to just eat tofu and like just think about like combining like rice and beans at meals and like all these things like that like there's solid stuff out there and like also so like for example i eat a lot of um like mock meat products so like soy burgers and even like you know, it'd be like meatless crumbles, right? So like it replicates like ground beef, but it's usually just some sort of like defatted soy, right? So basically these things are like relatively low in fat, um, you know, comparable to meat. They're going to have more carbohydrate than meat though, but it like, it's not bad like whatsoever. Like, you know, everyone like consider the fact that like I did my whole prep as a vegan. I was like, gonna say, like was calories that? got really low and like, you know, I was never at like this bottleneck where I was like, oh, like, you know, I can't get to 2.4 grams per kg of protein while also meat. like that never happened to me, you know, and it's because I would consume like a couple of protein shakes, which I was, you know, I would just consume whey when I was an omnivore, like no change there. And then I would have these other things like these soy burgers or these soy crumbles. And those were like my four protein feedings per day. And it was, and it was completely fine. So it's like, there's, and you know, there's just like, arise these different things so like for example like you know what mycoprotein is yes corn right normally the company 
Yeah. Corn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The company, the company's corn. Q U O R N, not corn. Yeah, it's a weird. <laughs> not corn, <laughs> and, like the C. Yeah. Yeah, and it's like it's basically like you know it's a protein derived from fungus, and like the essential amino acid profile is fantastic. Like there's some studies comparing the muscle protein th- synthesis response to like milk protein. It was actually like in favor of mycoprotein in one study. It was pretty good. But yeah, it's like this high quality protein source and you can find this in like all these different like mock meat products. So yeah, it, it's, there are definitely solid options out there. You just have to know where to look and where to find them. It's not just tofu. Um, also, it's not just uh, like Beyond Burgers and Impossible Burgers, which again are not are not bodybuilder friendly. Like they taste like they made those products to taste really good. And if you were going to make like a cheeseburger, like this is what you want to use with, but it's like, you know, as bodybuilders, we don't just like our meals don't entirely derive around like gustatory pleasure. Like there are other things you need to consider. So that's like the main thing that comes to my mind. Um, and you know, even for like the regular person, right? Like I've even been asked this, like as like vegan, like, how do you get enough protein? And they're not talking about bodybuilding protein. Like they're not talking about like, how do you get your gram per pound per day? They're literally like, how do you meet Any. the RDA? <laughs> <laughs> like, what? <laughs> like, it's crazy. Did, uh, out of interest, uh, did your fiber intake really go up? Because I know a lot of the, because pro- it's all plant-based, right? So fiber, like the fiber is just wild. The fiber is wild. So before, like I, so I've been, uh, a vegan bodybuilder in the off season and dude straight up i've had days where my fiber intake is at like 100 grams per day that doesn't surprise me and like i was fine like you know what i mean like and yeah. it's just like again there's like this adaptation right like if i was at like 30 grams of fiber per day and like went to 100 like okay like this isn't good but like there's been this transition over time even as an omnivore i like consumed a lot of fiber so like again like talking about that transition my diet literally didn't change when I went, like if you consider it from being omnivore to vegan, except instead of whey protein, I had, you know, some sort of plant-based protein powder. By the way, there's like vegan whey protein nowadays, if people didn't know that. So it's like produced from microbial fermentation and like, oh, like, wow. Yeah. 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 So cool. <laughs> made in a Petri dish and it's like, in terms of the essential amino acid profile, like the physiological response to it, like, so really like whey protein. Also, it tastes and mixes like it too. I've had it. It's just really expensive. So like sometimes I just go back to the pea protein isolate there. But um, yeah, like not much change there. It's still lots of fruits and vegetables, lots of legumes, cereals, whole grains. It's just like instead of beef or chicken or egg, it became these mock meat products. So like not Did a huge step. Did you have to look at uh, iron or B12 at all? Were there th- did you supplement with those or did you find sources, like plant-based sources to get those? Yeah, so B12, like straight up necessity. Like you, you're not going to find, you're not going to find it somewhere else in some plant-based food. Like take your B12 supplement, vegans. Like, geez Louise, like that's a, a non-negotiable. In terms of iron, no. Um, like, the iron research is actually like pretty interesting in terms of like observational research and health outcomes. Like, like for example, like the risk of type two diabetes, like with higher um, iron intake from animals, there seems to be an increase in risk there. But even with like really high iron intakes from plant foods, we see like a decreased risk of type two diabetes. And like, there's some mechanistic stuff 
looking at that and it seems like you know with too much iron particularly from animal sources there's like a negative effect on pancreatic beta cells so there might be something going on there so that's actually like a really interesting health consideration um with respect to like plant-based diets and health outcomes but yeah iron um not very difficult i i i get like more than enough iron personally i don't think there's too much you gotta look out for um even other nutrients of concern whether it's like zinc or magnesium and like that i mean they're prevalent in like nuts and seeds which obviously you have access to and get more than enough of um kind of a tangent but like so i mentioned an increased risk of an adequate intake of certain nutrients and while like that's like a factual statement in a vacuum like it also like suggests that the average omnivorous diet is just like adequate in all vitamins and minerals, which is like not even close to being the case. Like if you look at like NHANES da data, which is like food surveys from Americans, like you'll see that like vitamin C, vitamin D, magnesium, like literally like I for vitamin D, like the latest figure I saw was like 94, 95% of people like aren't getting enough through the diet. And it's just like, these insane figures. I mean, I worked, I've worked with a lot of athletes in the past, like people eating like 5,000 calories per day. And even in these people, they're getting like not even 50% of their magnesium, zinc. Like there's just certain nutrients where it's like, yes. if you don't go out of your way to consume certain foods, it doesn't matter how much food you eat or the type of diet you're consuming. Like you're just, you're just not going to get enough of it. So like you can definitely cover your needs uh more than satisfactory with a vegan diet but yeah I, I would say like the only one nutrient where it's like you're just not going to find it like you got to supplement it's it's probably b12 yeah that makes sense uh yeah i do magnesium and zinc like mm -hmm. I, I supplement with those and generally recommend people do because uh i think we go through it a bit more as like i think there was some research i remember reading it from menno where it's like athletes just you run through these minerals a little bit faster than the general yeah. person and so generally you can benefit from it so that make and it makes sense and i think your argument there is like a very sound one like it's not like omnivorous diets so like <laughs> these health purposes uh in every case like there's definitely uh problems with those too and yeah out of interest this is something i've actually thought about uh for a bit is do you ever consider and i don't know if it's uh it, it may very well be an ignorance of mine to it like the processing of like the mock meats do you have ever concerns of like hey this there like generally processed food isn't quite as healthful as non-processed food. Do you ever think mm. about that with your choices there that it's maybe not as like quote unquote optimal for health outcomes? No, I don't. I think the whole processed food discussion, so like specifically ultra processed food and like what exactly is ultra processed? It's like actually kind of a hot topic in the nutrition community because yeah, for most studies we use like it's called like the Nova classification system, right? And then we see in all of these studies, right? It's like oh well, like you know, uh, a higher intake of ultra processed foods is associated with an increased uh, risk of like all of these negative uh, health outcomes. But like on paper, like tofu is, you know, ultra processed. If you look at something like almond milk, you know, that might be like fortified, like that's what like you're not fine you're not going to find a block of tofu in nature like you know like there's extensive processing of these foods but then we consistently see that these soy-based foods are associated with 
uh, improved health outcomes, reduced risk of type 2 diabetes and cardiovascular disease. And we see in randomized control trials that, you know, you add some soy to the diet or you replace red meat with some sort of soy-based mock meat. And there's consistent notable reductions in low-density lipoprotein cholesterol levels. So, I mean, when it comes to like ultra-processed foods, it's very clear to me that there are distinctions within this class, right? Like not ultra processed foods are are considered equal. Um, and even in the case of just mock meats, right? Like, should I be concerned about the processing of those? And it's like, well, you know, the mock meats I referred to earlier that I eat that are relatively low in fat, right? It's literally just like soy, like maybe one or two other ingredients in the box. But if you look at that, and then look at an impossible burger, right? Or beyond beef burger. And there's like a long list and it's like, you know, and, but then it's also, you don't have to look at the ingredients either, right? You can look at the saturated fat content, the sodium content, like these nutrients of concern, and you'll see they're radically higher in these other things. So yeah, I don't, I don't put really any stock at all into the classification of a food as being like ultra processed or, or natural or whether like, you know, our ancestors ate them in the wild. Um, I'm just like more concerned with the nutrient content. Um, you know, is there excessive amounts of sodium? Is it like super high in saturated fat? Um, and yeah, and looking at like health outcomes within the available research. Yeah, I think that's well said. And I think you're kind of the, the thinking there is i think when i see this argument is people are looking at like the beyond burgers or the impossible mm-hmm. burgers and like yeah. it has this huge ingredients list and then they put it up like versus a steak and it's like but the the comparison really should be a steak versus like just some soy like you like the soy products you're having and then it's like hey actually when you then compare those like like you said there's minimal processing compared and it's not really the processing so much as the saturated fat and yeah. those added things within it so that's where I see like if people just go from uh, I don't know if and it's not even going to happen. You see people go, going from like eating like a, if you're eating a very healthy omnivorous diet, you're probably mm. going to go and make good solid choices as a vegan. Yeah. Whereas if you're eating a junky like uh, I don't want to <laughs> use the term junky, but like not a high quality omniv- yeah. omnivorous diet, you're going to go and do the same when you go vegan. So it's very mm-hmm. much on like easy for the consumer to make the right choices there and some of the mock meats are actually really decent uh but they to find the lower fat ones sometimes can be a bit it takes some effort yeah exactly and that's why i think it is like probably you know it's your your number one as being a vegan bodybuilder like see like that was my number one i was like okay well like i know what tofu is and i know what tempeh is then you know i'm in the grocery store and i'm like man like new the amount of calories, just the amount of protein. I, I was literally like in the off season, like eating these foods. I was like, this is fine in the off season. I would think about what am I going to do during prep? And I'm like, <laughs> like, these are not going to cut it during prep. And like, you know, you just do a little bit of research and like, you can find these things. But um, so you mentioned there, like, you know, what we should be comparing when we're talking about, like, you know, these mock meats compared to regular meats. And maybe this can get us into some of like the research concerning soy and the potential health benefits of soy and why this matters. So there was actually a study in, I think it was 2019, um, like the abbreviated title is like the swap meat trial. So this was conducted by, I think the lead author was Christopher Gardner. Um, so he's a researcher at Stanford last time I checked. He does like- Great really last name cool. for this, yes. by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he does like a lot of great research. And, and in this study, they straight up compared- um, 
It was a crossover trial. So the participants completed both diet conditions and they were comparing basically like 80, 20 red meat and they compared it to, they literally, it was either Impossible Burger or Beyond Beef. It was one of those. And like the nutrition profile of 80, 20 ground beef and one of these, the popular mock meats, it's like, it's relatively similar in terms of the saturated fat content, total fat, protein. And I think during the conditions, if I remember correctly, that while the participants were eating the mock meat, their daily saturated fat intake was around like 26 grams per day. Whereas in the, um, the red meat condition, it was around like 33 grams. And I believe this difference, like it's not huge on paper, but I believe the difference was statistically significant. And they saw that at the end of this trial that I believe it was LDLC specifically was significantly lower after using the mock meat, right? And again, like this wasn't this wasn't one of like, you know, the the higher quality mock meats, right? Like it had all the good stuff in there, tasty product, high in saturated fat, relatively high sodium. And they looked at changes in all of these cardiometabolic risk factors. And there was no difference between these conditions, except for the fact that cholesterol levels were uh, significantly decreased with the mock meat, which, so like, I thought this was pretty interesting because it, you know, they more or less equated for all these nutrients that would, um, you know, more or less affect cardiomet cardiometabolic risk factors. Cause then, and there's been a few other studies that they didn't correctly directly compare a mock meat to ground beef, but there's been a variety of studies that have participants eat a uh, background healthy diet. So by that, I mean, they had them eat like, a Mediterranean style diet or a DASH diet. So the dietary approaches to stop hypertension. I mean, these are diets that are rich in fruits and vegetables, low fat dairy, whole grains, uh, a bunch of good stuff. And the only difference was that they would have one group eat like a serving of red meat per day. Sometimes it was lean red meat too. And the other group, they would replace that with um, legumes either, you know, so I believe like in one study it was tofu specifically. Another one was, I think, beans. And some of them had them replaced with soy nuts. And the same thing in these studies is that even the context of like a very healthy diet. And the only difference is that is a serving red meat or you place it with, you know, an equivalent amount of protein from legumes. And there are improvements in um, measures of glycemic control. So like insulin sensitivity, HbA1c and longer studies or just fasting glucose. And then cholesterol levels is like a really consistent finding is that you see that when you, you take that red meat out of the diet that and replace it with some sort of legume is that there's a significant reduction in LDLC. So when we combine that with the observational evidence, you know, showing that in like substitution analyses, or even just comparing people with like the highest soy intake to the lowest soy intake. And we see a reduced risk of chronic diseases. We take that, we add on this evidence from these randomized control trials showing these improvements in cardiometabolic risk factors. And like, yeah, I think there is like really solid evidence, like an overwhelming amount of evidence at this point that people would benefit from including uh, more plant-based protein sources in their diet. Yeah, I think that's really well stated. And it actually brings me back to a thought that you said earlier, uh, as like a dietitian, uh, what you're looking at isn't so much like 
it's similar to like with training i think where we're looking at mechanical tension placed on a muscle we're not looking at whether or not it's coming from a certain a machine or a freeway or whatever it is it's like that's what the body's going to respond to and it's similar Mm -hmm. here it's like hey you could be vegan you could be an omnivore what comes what it comes down to is what nutrients are you getting in terms of macros micros and you can clearly do a really good job eating as a vegan and and covering all your bases and possibly like outperforming an om- om- omnivorous diet. I really struggle with that word. Every time I try and say it, I'm like omnivorous. <laughs> uh, so I think that's just so well st- stated there, Mike. Uh, the final thing actually, well, a topic I wanted to touch on, because I think people will be thinking about it as you, whenever you mention soy, people think, oh no, the phytoestrogens are going to turn me into like having man boobs and everything like that. Are those worries at all like substantiated at all? Yeah, I mean, I was just saying there's a ton of evidence showing that there aren't any adverse effects. And even with like, uh, I mean, there's been some studies that would have people supplement with like a really high dose of soy isoflavones, like up to like 75 milligrams per day. And like, there's been meta-analyses conducted on the topic. And it's like, we just don't see any adverse effects on either um, on, on reproductive hormone levels in men or women. Um, there's also been some studies in men looking at like sperm quality parameters with like relatively high doses of a uh, soy isoflavone supplementation. And there's just like nothing there. But yeah, the, the concern arises from the fact that um, phytoestrogens are structurally similar to estrogen, you know, so there's this expectation that they have similar effects in the body. And it seems to me that the mechanistic evidence indicates that the um the strength at which um this molecule binds to estrogen receptors is just significantly weaker in terms of phytoestrogen compared to estrogen and then also in terms of the receptors that it binds to um there's an alpha and a beta and basically the phytoestrogen um attaches more readily to beta and like has a very weak affinity for alpha whereas in terms of regular estrogen it has a similar affinity for both so like there's these differences in strength and like the specifics uh with respect to the receptors it binds to so i mean there's you know like some mechanistic speculation for like but ultimately what we care about is that we have multiple meta-analyses showing that when people eat a lot of soy um there's just no effect on the reproductive hormone levels and then again like if we did expect some sort of negative effect let's say men right and we're talking about bodybuilders like in one of these um one of these training intervention studies where they saw no differences in changes in muscle mass between a group consuming a vegan diet and a group consuming an omnivorous diet and by the way in that vegan diet group this is both groups are consuming high protein diets at least 1.6 grams per kg per day soy protein intake comprised over half of the protein intake in the vegan group. And it's like, I mean, this is like a 12 week study, but like, you know, if it was so horrible for you, you know, wouldn't we expect that? Like, I don't know, like maybe like testosterone levels like plummeted and then gains were impaired because of that. You know, it's like, well, that didn't happen. Like gains were the same. So yeah, there's just no evidence supporting that. (laughs) 
Yeah. No, I think that's super well stated. Uh, again, it, that kind of tr drawing too strongly from mechanisms when there is no outcome data on it, I think that's just so well stated that people, and I, I'm, I've certainly probably done that at times where I've been convinced that there's like this background mechanism occurring. It's like, yeah, but do you have actually any outcome evidence to suggest that is the case? It's like, maybe it's not the case then and we shouldn't be too like strong-minded in that sense um the final thing i want to talk about actually to switch gears a little bit we've been talking about protein uh but i think you covered off the kind of uh, if anyone's thinking about going vegan as a bodybuilder i think they have a pretty good confidence that they can do that now and how to go about it uh the next one is talking about this study that came out kind of looking at this leucine hypothesis and how hey I think a lot of people listening will think, hey, I need to meet a certain leucine threshold, two to three grams maybe, to maximize muscle protein synthesis because, hey, I want all the gains and so I need to make sure I'm doing this. And this study essentially looked at that and yeah, I'd love you to kind of uh, give the listeners the take-homes. Yeah, so this was this was a pretty interesting paper. Um, I looked over it again this morning and there's like more details that like piqued my interest. I'm like, oh gosh, like there's a lot to potentially discuss here. But just like going with the main takeaways, they basically looked at whether the dose of leucine consumed was associated with the uh, postprandial muscle protein synthesis response. And they found that in young adults, which I believe the range was 18 years old to 35 years old that the dose of leucine was not associated with the response. Um, so, you know, this conflicts with the notion that, you know, you need at least two to three grams. I don't know what the latest figure is that people cite, but some, somewhere in there somewhere to, mac that, yeah. to maximize the most protein synthesis response. And when I, I remember like when I first just looked at the abstract, but I saw this and I was like, yeah, but like what were the doses of leucine included in these studies, right? So it's like, if that, if that was the finding, but then you look at the graph and like every study provided like at least two grams, right? And it's like, okay, well, six grams isn't better than two grams, but it's like, but we thought two grams was the floor anyway. So I was, but, but like that wasn't the case. There were a bunch of studies that gave participants literally less than a gram of leucine within this dose of protein. And in young adults, there was just no association whatsoever. Um, and they also looked at older adults. And in this analysis, they found a dose response relationship. So it was like, hey, man, more leucine, better postprandial muscle protein synthesis. And like, there's just no ceiling found. I think like the highest wow. dose was like six grams. And it's That's like, a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, like, based on the study, it's like nobody gave the participants any more than that. So if they gave them more, like, would, uh, would, you know, muscle protein synthesis go up even more? So, that is an interesting finding. Um, you know, the the analysis in, in young adults is definitely the one that we're more concerned with and is more interesting to us, but and it conflicts with like our previous notions. But I think the idea that like leucine is more important in older adults, the dose of leucine, uh, that makes sense based on our previous knowledge, right? So older adults, you know have anabolic resistance like they're less sensitive to the anabolic effects of protein ingestion so they tend to need more protein than younger adults to maximize the muscle protein synthesis response um so that makes sense there but again so getting into the nuances here of that is that when you look when you look at the analyses and this association in older adults um over the early phase so this is like over two hours post-protein ingestion, 
you see this really strong correlation between the dose of leucine and the muscle protein synthesis response. But then if you look at the entire postprandial phase, which in this study was over a six hour period, the correlation while significant is actually like really weak. Like I think it was like the dose of leucine explained like 16% of the variance in the muscle protein synthesis response, which I thought was really interesting. Um, and basically it seemed, I think a lot of this has to do with the fact that in the older adults, to my knowledge, like basically every study in older adults used like a protein supplement, like some sort of like a protein isolate. And there's prior research, there's actually a systematic review looking at like the same topic in 2021. And, you know, they basically the same analysis that they, fo they focused on blood levels of leucine as opposed to like the dose of leucine ingested. Um, and they noted that this effect, this association seems to be stronger when it comes to protein supplements. There seems to be this disassociation when we're talking about like whole food meals, right? So it could be the case that, you know, this early response is so strong, the correlation, because like these protein sources in terms of protein isolates are so rapidly digested. So you see more of a notable difference within that early window. But then when it comes to like whole foods, we know that that muscle protein synthesis response is a bit longer to more sustained. So it probably matters, the dose of leucine matters even less in that context. So it, it, it seems to me like more research is going to be needed here. But even in the case of older adults, like... I think we need to interpret these findings with like some caution and understanding like the limitations of what's going on. And it's that it seems like it seems like in this population that if we're talking about like a relatively low dose of protein, because a lot of these studies only use 20 grams of protein, right? Which is not exactly like a maximally effective dose in older adults. So if we look at like limited quantities of total protein. And then we're also not consuming a mixed meal, we're consuming a protein supplement. Then it's like, okay, more leucine, the better. But that's like a very specific contextual finding, right? It's like, yes, like leucine matters, more leucine better, but it's only really applicable in the terms of protein supplements. And when the total dose of protein is probably suboptimal for maximizing the postprandial muscle synthetic response. Yeah, that's that's really interesting, and I don't know why my take home is not take home. Uh, like thirty five plus is considered an older adult, and I'm like, man, I'm scarily close to this to this uh, this uh, kind of point of which you turn into an older adult. But um, yeah, it's definitely interesting, and I think it's like you said, hey, it's like a lot of research where it's like, hey, this outcome happened, but it was only under these certain conditions. Mm -hmm. You can't just assume now that this applies to every condition out there and this is like you said a pretty like context dependent condition yeah for how many people are just consuming just a protein supplement and just 20 grams worth of protein from that i don't think that probably happens too often yeah so i think that's interesting did it uh for on reading this paper did it change any of your practical advice regarding kind of protein intake or spread no and i think I think it adds to like this evolving picture of like the protein literature where it's literally just, hey man, like hit this total intake 
and like the rest of the variables like don't sweat it like <laughs> you're fine like it just seems like one thing after the other in this field where it's like you know like oh i guess like back today right get your six meals per day you know have your protein feeding at each of these meals spread it out and then it was like oh but that like post-workout window huh like that's where the money's at right it's like it probably doesn't matter either and then like you know we just like consistently over time and then like plant-based versus animal-based protein sources right it's like okay well at least make sure you get your protein from animal-based sources and it's like no like you know when we look at you know muscle protein synthesis data now we have two long-term studies showing no difference so we have no difference in muscle protein synthesis in the short term we have no difference in gains over the longer term it's just like and now we have you know leucine it's like okay but still like make sure you're getting enough leucine at each protein feeding and it's like yeah maybe if you're an older adult and you're also like have to consume like this very limited amount of total protein at each meal you know like yeah maybe it matters but it's like, if we have no restrictions, it's just like, oh, okay, like, you know, eat your 1.6 grams per kg per day, get it from animals or plants, leucine content, I don't know, probably doesn't really matter. And it's like, yeah, that's kind of it. Otherwise, like, I don't know, like, maybe I like, I think it probably met like, I think all of these things probably matter. If like, you're consuming the RDA, like, if you're consuming 0 0.8 grams per kg, maybe one gram per kg like yeah maybe the the quality the source the leucine content the spacing like maybe all that stuff but like interestingly enough like there's really like we, we don't have much research looking at all these variables combined but like otherwise it's like oh no there's no like i can get 1.6 grams in per day i'm like oh, okay just like you know do whatever you want with that like <laughs> just hit the target you might be good yeah it's <laughs> In some ways, it was like my, when I first found out about like, if it fits your macros and flexible dieting, a, a big part of me was like, no way you can like just match macros and it can be fine. And no, surely I have to eat my chicken, rice and broccoli or whatever yeah. it was to maximize results. And I'm, I'm going to gain so much fat if I eat a bit of chocolate now and then. And then it was like, oh, actually I can do this. And I think it's similar here where a lot of people have held on to these like to know they love to know that they're maximizing their results because mm -hmm. they're hitting this like loosing threshold it's like mm -hmm. you know what probably doesn't matter that much <laughs> and it's like ah oh, this is something i was holding on to to like <laughs> but really it should be a relief just like for me now it's like hey i'm only doing bodybuilding now because i'm like i can actually eat like a bit of a normal person and not be yeah. eating out of tupperware for every meal like on the clock and so it should be a bit of a relief which it's a nice thing to have learned, um, I think, overall. So, and, and well explained, I think. I don't know if there's anything else you had you wanted to touch on it. Otherwise, I think we've had a really good chat and covered these topics really nicely. Yeah, I don't think I have anything else to add. Fantastic. Mike, thank you so much for your time again. Uh, if people want to, again, like last time, continue to follow along with your off-season journey. And I know you post... Uh, now and then these very interesting kind of uh, infographics about these various topics and subjects where should they head yeah so you can follow me on instagram at mike murray rd and then check out examine man we're doing good stuff also we just updated the protein guide it's coming out soon we updated it we talk about you know protein guidelines for vegans for older adults for fat loss for athletes it's coming out in the near future we're updating the calculator too. make your life even easier in terms of uh, figuring out the optimal protein intake for you and your goals so yeah 
check out Examine too. I can never say enough positive things about Examine. I just think it's it's a great hub and resource for especially coaches, but people who are really into this thing and they want to yeah make sure they're doing everything right by themselves. So yeah, definitely check those out. I'll make sure it's linked in the description or in the area where I can write <laughs> below somewhere in the text. Uh, thank you guys for listening as we're catch you soon. Losing weight fast while maintaining muscle mass. Sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? It isn't though, it's reality and we know how to do it. And we will help you achieve this. The Minicup Movement is an eight week fat loss program to make you lose a huge chunk of fat while maintaining muscle mass at the same time. We will support you from the beginning to the end so that you see the results you would like to and come out of it much stronger. You will receive a fully automated spreadsheet that is based on your nutritional needs. You can choose between six different male and female training templates. Over 30 videos will guide you through each and every single step of the minicup so that you're getting the most out of your journey and that you always know what to do. But the best thing is that you can start whenever you want. The minicup movement is open 24-7. So if you want to learn more or you're ready to sign up, hit the link in the description below. So let's revive stronger together.